Well, like I said, uh, my name is Brad, and I have the privilege of, of bringing the word to you guys this morning. And if you have been around Center Church this summer, uh, you know that we're in a series called Kingdom Culture, where we're looking at the different parables of Jesus, because one of Jesus' primary methods of teaching was through telling stories. And so my wife and I, we have three kids, uh, two daughters, ages five and seven, and a son, age four. And my daughters are in that season, if, if your parents in the room, you know, you know the season well, where they fight over everything, right? I mean, they fight over air to breathe if they could. And I was kind of listening to them the other day. They were upstairs in their room and they were having an argument. And you know your kids are watching way too much Disney movies when this is the argument they're having. They're having an argument about who is the most beautiful in the family. And so my seven-year-old, I hear her shouting at my five-year-old. She's like, I'm the most beautiful. Of course, my five-year-old, who's a spitfire, fires back. No, I'm the most beautiful. You're the second most beautiful. And they're like going back and forth over and over about this. And I walk up to the room and I said, guys, you're both wrong. Your mother's the most beautiful. Now, I wish I would have said that. That's not what I said. Um, but what I did say is, guys, the one who's the most beautiful is the one who is the most kind to their sister. Right? The one who's the most beautiful is the one who puts others before themselves and all of that stuff, which isn't like a horribly bad dad answer, right? You've got to take the wins in parenting when you can get them. Uh, but then a new fight broke out as they sat there and thought about it. And the new fight sounded something like this. You're the most beautiful. I'm the second most beautiful. No, you're the most beautiful. I'm the second most beautiful. And all of a sudden the script was flipped and the fight kind of flipped itself on its head, and, and in their effort to be kind, a new fight broke out. And as I thought about this, and by the way, parenting is filled with great sermon illustrations. As I thought about this, I thought to myself, man, our, even like our attempts at love are pretty pathetic sometimes, aren't they? Like even our attempts at loving other people are not always great. In fact, we, we can love out of self-serving or hidden motives, right? Some of us have been in relationships and marriages where there's kind of a quid pro quo, unspoken scoreboard, and love is motivated by something that's not entirely pure. Our love can be motivated by guilt. It can be motivated by obligation. Our lack of love can stem from apathy or indifference or laziness. And, and the question I want to ask us this morning as we begin is what if admitting that we don't always love well is the first step to learning how to actually love people well? What if admitting that we're not always good at this, this love thing towards our neighbor, or towards our brothers and sisters, is the first step in learning how to actually love really well? See, today we're going to look at probably arguably the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. If you've been in church for more than two minutes, you've probably heard this parable in some iteration. We're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. And even that term, Good Samaritan, has become kind of a synonymous term in our culture at large as a do-gooder or someone who's kind, someone who helps people who are less fortunate, whatever it might be. But I believe that if all we do is we read a story like the Good Samaritan and we think to ourselves, man, I need to be more kind or more loving, we've actually missed the deeper point that Jesus is getting at here. 
See, this is a profound picture of the gospel that Jesus gives us in this parable. And what I want to do this morning is I want to draw out what I believe is the truer point of this story, which is this, that loving my neighbor begins when I see that I can't really love my neighbor on my own. Loving my neighbor begins when I see that I actually don't really have the ability to love my neighbor on my own. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And we're going to look at this famous parable uh, with fresh eyes this morning. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now let's pause here for a second because this is a common question that Jesus has asked. If you know the story of the rich young ruler, the rich guy who came to Jesus, he asked Jesus the same question. This was a question Jesus was frequently asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And watch Jesus' response here. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now what I love about Jesus' response here is this lawyer comes up to him, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And and Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And the lawyer knows the law. He kind of lists it out, and, and Jesus says, cool, do that. Do that and you're good. Just, just follow the law flawlessly and you'll inherit salvation. You'll inherit eternal life. It's actually the same exact response he gave to the rich young ruler. Just follow the law flawlessly. You see, Jesus didn't necessarily say anything new to the lawyer in this moment. In fact, Jewish people who studied the law and analyzed the law would have already boiled the law down to these two major concepts, love God and love people. Jesus isn't introducing a new concept there. In fact, if you look at even the Ten Commandments, if you know those well, the Ten Commandments are basically boiled down into two two categories. The first several are love the Lord your God, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, You shall not make an idol for yourself. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. The first several all have to do with loving God. And then the the second group of them all have to do with loving our neighbor, right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet vertical relationship and horizontal relationship at the same time. And so Jesus responds to this lawyer and he simply says, do all of that flawlessly. Follow it. Do it perfectly. And you'll have eternal life. End of sermon. Right? Full stop. The problem is, the problem is that we can't do that. We're not actually that good at loving flawlessly. We're actually not that good at following the law flawlessly. And so what I love about Jesus is he is so simple. Sometimes we make faith more complicated than it needs to be. And yet Jesus is so simple about this and so sassy towards this guy at the same time. Right? This is what I love about Jesus is he, he says just flawlessly, flawlessly follow the law and you'll live. Just be perfect and you'll have life. But... Keep in mind, this is a lawyer Jesus is dealing with. And so the lawyer, the lawyer has a follow-up question for Jesus. 
And this verse, verse 29, may be the most important verse of the whole kind of narrative here this morning. As it sets up, it's kind of the linchpin for the whole parable. This is what it says, verse 29. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, that's a really, really important line there. Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's the key to this passage. Mr. Legal Expert wanted to justify himself. I'm not that bad at loving my neighbor. I'm pretty good at this whole law thing. I keep the commandments. I I do these things. He wants to justify himself, so he does a lawyer trick. Any lawyers in the room at all? Anybody know any lawyers? They're sneaky little people, aren't they? I wanted to be a lawyer when I uh, went to college. That's actually what I studied for. But, but one of the things that this, this lawyer does is he's like, can you just kind of maybe define what you mean by neighbor? Like, who is my neighbor? Right? Jesus, he's like in a court of law. Tell me what this means. He's looking for loopholes. Sorry to any lawyers out there. You know it's true, though. So he's like, what do you mean when I say neighbor? He's trying to justify himself. We do the same thing, don't we? Studies show that 90% of people believe that they are more loving than the average person. We try to justify ourselves. Maybe for you, you walk through this life and you think to yourself, I treat people pretty well who treat me well. There's this uh, famous quote that says, love thy neighbor as thyself, but choose thy neighborhood carefully. I consider myself a kind person. I don't harbor prejudice. I'm tolerant. I love everybody. I don't judge anybody. Can I just say that we have so lowered the bar on what love actually is? You see, Jesus comes and he lives this life where he says, agape your enemies. In other words, love in a way that self-sacrifices and lays your life down for the sake of people you don't even like that much. And we've settled for you do you, I'll do me, I'll just kind of tolerate you, and we'll kind of call that love. But what if loving my neighbor begins when I see I can't really love my neighbor on my own power? See, until you see you're incapable to love on your own, you're incapable to love. Real love begins when you understand that you don't have real love within yourself to offer others. And so this lawyer asks a question, what does Jesus do? He breaks out into a story. He's like that old grandpa. When I was a kid, right, he's always got a story ready to tell. And the story he tells here is about this man who gathers up his stuff and heads from Jerusalem to Jericho, most likely returning from worshiping in Jerusalem back home to Jericho. And this road that he traveled on was a dangerous road. In fact, they called this road the way of blood, and it wasn't called this for no reason. You see, as the sun beat on this guy's back, every twist and turn was filled with uncertainty, with danger, with the possibility of thieves and robbers and looters waiting in the nooks and crannies of the cave to jump this guy, kill him, rob him, whatever they might do. And as this guy is slowly going down this road heading home, he turns a corner and all of a sudden the unthinkable, the worst possible thing happens. He is jumped. He is robbed. He is beaten to within an inch of his life, and he is laying there on the ground unconscious. 
And what Jesus does is he says two separate guys came up to this guy beaten on the side of the road. Now, what I love about Jesus here is he has these two separate guys that come up, a, a priest and a Levite. Now, in Jewish mindset, what Jesus is kind of doing here is it's almost like one of those three guys walk into a bar type joke. And, and what he's doing here is in Jewish consciousness, you would have known, okay, order of temple worship would be priest, Levite, Jewish commoner. This was kind of the three grouping together. Right, so when Jesus brings up priest and Levite coming by, he's speaking to a familiar language and order of things that this lawyer would have known well. And so first, a priest comes by, and he sees the guy on the side of the road, and he passes by on the other side. He chooses not to help him. He chooses not to aid him. And then the Levite comes by, and the same exact thing happens with the Levite. He sees the guy, and he chooses not to help him. And what Jesus is doing here by pointing out that it was a priest and a Levite to this lawyer is he is saying, do you see the conundrum here? Do you see how complicated this thing actually is? Because in the the mind of the priest and the Levite, the question they would be wrestling with is, do I break the law and help the guy or do I break the law and not help the guy? See, to help the guy meant potentially breaking Jewish law. As a priest and a Levite, you were not allowed to go near dead bodies. And if this guy was here unconscious on the side of the road, presumed dead, it would have meant potentially breaking the law to go and help them. That would have been a violation in some ways of loving God. And and, in other ways, to go near this dead body, to go near this unconscious person, would have meant that any food they were carrying home for their families would have been defiled. So that may have meant their family doesn't eat that night. I mean, this is a significant moral dilemma that Jesus is placing before this lawyer here. But on the other hand, it was also a violation of the law to to just pass by. Because there's so many laws about helping the neighbor and helping those who are destitute and helping those in times of desperation or in need. Tons of Jewish laws about loving your neighbor. So to continue walking and simply passing this guy by was equally a violation of the law. So both the priest and the Levite choose to keep walking. They violate the law of loving your neighbor. And this is it here. You see the genius of Jesus He is out lawyering this lawyer with the law. He's saying, lawyer, do you want eternal life? Just love perfectly. Just love flawlessly. Then you'll get to heaven. Then you'll have salvation. Love perfectly and God will accept you. Just go ahead. I dare you. Love perfectly. And what is so genius about Jesus is he put a scenario before the lawyer where perfect love seems impossible. Where perfect love seems undoable. And I think that's the point. That you and I, when we look at the law, when we look at God's standard of righteousness, that we cannot love perfectly. We don't have perfect love within ourselves to give. We're not always very good at this love thing, are we? Let's put ourselves to the test for just a moment, okay? This is church. We're going to do a test here this morning. I want to put up this, uh, this picture, and I lovingly call this the chart of shame, okay? And uh, I'm not here to shame anybody, but uh, this is a picture of your house in the middle. So that's where you live, that blue house. And then you have eight houses surrounding you, 
So you live in the center. And I want to just kind of put yourself to the test here. If you were to look at your house, your neighborhood, wherever you live, your apartment, how many of those neighbors around you, how many of their names do you know? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I live in the country on acreage. Well, so do I, okay? You still have eight neighbors around you in some capacity. They just might be two miles away. But how many of these names do you know? Let's take it a step deeper. How many things do you know about each of those names? Like, Could you name something that goes beyond just surface level about each of these neighbors around you? So you, what kind of car they drive doesn't count because you can observe that from a distance, but what are their kids' names? What do they do for a living? What kind of hard things have they walked through recently? What are they celebrating in their lives right now? I probably, and I'll just be honest, I'll be transparent here, I probably know about five of my eight by name. Like, I'm not always very good at this, and I'm a pastor. Like, this is my job to be good at this stuff. And yet I am not always good at loving people well. It's funny, I always, um, I always run my sermons by my wife before I preach them. That's always a good technique to have because uh, they'll put you in your place and she goes, are you going to be honest that you're not always very good at this? I said, yes, I guess I have to be honest that I'm not always very good at this. I don't know about anybody else, but even just having walked through COVID and just that season, and I know everything's easy to blame on COVID, but I've become a lot more recluse since then. Like I've viewed my home as more of a sanctuary from the world than anything else in this last season. Right? It's easy to look at our lives and to think to ourselves like, Man, we don't love perfectly. And the deeper that you go in this, you discover like at some point our love for other people gets too inconvenient. It gets too messy. It gets too hard. And it falls apart at some point. If this is God's standard of perfect love, we fall short every single time. But loving my neighbor begins when I see I can't really love my neighbor on my own strength. And this is the big plot twist that Jesus brings into the story that the, that the lawyer did not see coming. You see, the first scenario Jesus points to is kind of kindergarten, elementary level neighboring. Right? This is like the easy stuff. The priest and the Levite is the easy kind of neighboring. Right? Anybody who's Jewish would have said, yeah, that guy is your neighbor very, very clearly. And what Jesus is about to do in this story to this lawyer is he's about to introduce law school level neighboring to this lawyer. See, again, in this lawyer's mind, priest, Levite came by. Oh, Jesus is going to introduce the Jewish commoner next, and he's going to be the hero of the story because Jesus is a man of the people. And, you know, this is a great ending to a story to have the Jewish commoner be the hero in this story who comes and helps the guy. But Jesus offers a profound twist here that would have caused his audience to have their, flo- their jaws on the floor. In verse 33, this is what Jesus says. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
I cannot overstate the shock factor that Jesus is introducing here by having a Samaritan come be the hero of the story and help this Jewish guy. I was thinking through like some modern equivalents of like how deep the rifts are between these two people. And I I use this example at my church that I I lead a couple months ago when I preached this sermon and got a bunch of angry emails about it. So I'm going to use the same example again for you guys. And uh, if this offends you, you can email me at john at centergr.com. I want you to imagine for a moment a scenario where someone like a right-wing political commentator like Ben Shapiro, he's Jewish, so this works, is beat up on the side of the road. And then all of a sudden a transgender activist comes and is made the hero of the story. This is the level of division that Jesus is getting at. And even our like agitation over an example like that, our tendency is to look and say, well, this is why that's different and, and this is why this is different and there's moral issues and God's holiness and stuff. Every single one of those objections Jewish people would have given to Jesus for this distinction between Samaritans and Jews. Let me just show you some of the hated rifts between these two groups of people. Jews called Samaritans a herd, not a nation. They dehumanized them. Samaritans would often join the Roman army during this time simply so that they could harass in a legal way their Jewish counterparts. An old Jewish proverb said a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. At one point, Samaritans threw animal bones into the Jewish temple on the day of Passover, defiling it from worship on the holiest day of the year for Jewish people. It'd be the equivalent of somebody bombing a church on Easter Sunday morning. Jewish people took part in the destruction and destroying of the Samaritan capital. I mean, the rift between these two groups of people goes on years and years. It is ethical, it is moral, it is religious, it is cultural. It hits at every single layer and level of human division. I don't know about you, I am so glad we've evolved since then. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of his story. Closing out the story here in verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I love how the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan's name. I imagine this response is through gritted teeth. And he just says, the one who showed him mercy, he won't even say the word Samaritan. See, the Jewish lawyer wants to know who counts as his neighbor. And in his mindset, the lawyer, for the lawyer, God is the God of Israel and his neighbors are his fellow Jews. But for Jesus, God is the God of grace for the entire world and his neighbor is anybody with a need. Jesus takes us to law school level neighboring by telling us that not only are your friends your neighbors, but your enemies are your neighbors. Now, it might be easy to go to a passage like this and say, next time I run into an enemy like a wounded terrorist, I'll happily help them. But what if the starting point of this passage is to begin with the places where love is not always easy in the everyday stuff of our lives? What if it begins with our actual neighbors? What if it begins with that person's name and that person's face that if they were to enter center church 
next week would just make your gut churn a little bit to see them here. Like, what if that's the starting place for this parable? What if the starting place for this parable is that person who has the thing that you want but you don't have and you're just bitter and angry and jealous? What if it starts with the people who live in your own home? Your workplace? Your actual neighborhood? What could change if we saw our homes less as castles to retreat from the world, but rather outposts for the kingdom of God in the world? What if our dining room tables became places not where we sit and we gather with people that are like-minded and our family and just eat a meal, but as an open door to show the love of the Father to those who are not yet his sons and daughters? What if we got a chance to see the gospel turn an enemy into a neighbor, and then into a brother or a sister. See, if we could see into the homes of the people around us, even if we could see into each other's homes, we would see that chances are our lives are not better than what we portray on social media. In many cases, they're harder. In many cases, there are people all around you who are longing for perfect love. They're longing for the love of a father. People who are hiding and lonely and hurting and longing. But this is the key to the entire story. Loving my neighbor begins when I see I can't really love my neighbor on my own. You see, as Western American Christians, what we tend to do with a story like this is we tend to say, well, I'm the good Samaritan. I'm the person who sees the person on the side of the road in need, and I am the one who's called to help them. And what we inevitably do is we put ourselves in the role of the Savior in this story. But I don't think that's how Jesus wants us to read this story. I don't think Jesus wants us to simply be better do-gooders with a story like this. I think what Jesus wants us to do is learn what it means to experience perfect love for ourselves first before we ever have any hope of showing that to others. You see, you cannot justify yourself just like the lawyer tried to do. If you and I are incapable of perfect love, but perfectly loving God in your neighbor is what makes you right with God, then what we need more than anything else is to experience that perfect love for ourselves first before we have any hope of giving love to others. In Jesus' story, you and I, we're not the Samaritan. And we're not the priest We're not the Levite, we're not the lawyer, we're not the innkeeper. You know what our first role is in this story? We are the man beat up and helpless on the side of the road in desperate need of saving, in desperate need of rescue. And Jesus is asking us, what if our only hope in this life is to get help and get rescue and get saving from someone who not only didn't owe that to us, but owed us the opposite? What if our only hope was to get free grace from someone who had every right to trample over us and pass us by and look the other way? You see it? Love is impossible apart from God. We are all the man dying on the side of the road, and Jesus came as the God-man into our dangerous world as our enemy. Scripture says, we don't like this verse too much, but Scripture says that in our sin, we are enemies of God. Like the rift between the Samaritans and the Jews is nothing compared to people and God in our sin. 
There is not a single enemy that you have in this world that is even comparable to how much your sin has divided you from God, to how much my sin has divided me from God. And yet, in his mercy, Jesus was moved to compassion for us. He showed us perfect love, not at the risk of his own life, but at the very cost of his own life. Jesus is the great Samaritan to whom the good Samaritan points. His death on the cross is evidence that he chose to be a neighbor to his enemies first so that his enemies could become brothers and sisters. That's you, that's me. Then what, uh, That's you and me. Before you have any hope of giving this type of neighbor, neighbor love, you have to begin receiving this type of neighbor, neighbor love. I love how 1 John 4 9 through 11 says this. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have, what does that say? Eternal life. Same exact question the lawyer asked him. So that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. Loving my neighbor begins when I see that I cannot love my neighbor well on my own. But when my life starts to get exposed to the perfect love of God, a love that crossed the barrier of heaven and earth, a love that hung on a cross, a love that has the power to restore everything that is wrong, everything that is broken, a love that has the power to make things whole, a love that has the power to give comfort to those who are grieving, to give stability to a mom and dad watching their young baby go through a heart surgery. When, when our lives are exposed to that kind of love, the only appropriate response is that starts to seep out of us towards others. I mean, that type of love has the power to humble me, has the power to remove all pride from my life, has the power to give me new eyes to see people with, has the power to confuse a world that is so used to just tolerance as being the bare minimum standard of what love is. It's a love that dies to itself. It's a love that humbles itself. It's a love that sacrifices for the sake of others. And so this morning as we close, I want to just ask you a simple question. Who in your life needs perfect love? Who in your life needs perfect love? Here's the thing. We're going to mess this up. We're not always good at this love thing. But when I read this book, when I read the New Testament here, I, what I see over and over again is that when hearts are exposed to God's perfect love, there is a fruit that starts to come out of our life. There is a new type of living, a new type of eyes that we begin to see the world with. When our lives are hidden in Christ, the only response is that that kind of love starts to seep out of us towards others. When our lives are so filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to see fruit in our lives like love come out towards others. 
I just want to close with this story, and then we're going to respond in worship. Um, a few weeks ago, a few months ago at this point now, I guess, um, my wife's cousin died by suicide. And it was an incredibly, incredibly hard season for our whole family. We're very close, tight-knit family. And my wife's family doesn't have a lot of church background. There's not a lot of faith basis there. And so as you can imagine, when you lose someone to suicide in that way, there's a lot of questions and a lot of anger and a lot of just like what ifs and a lot of insecurity and instability and fear and anger and bitterness and all of this stuff. And I just remember someone from our church coming up to um, us after this was happened and, and they just said, what can we do to, to love your family well? And my wife's aunt happened to live in Wayland, I mean, literally two blocks from the church where we serve. And, you know, we just said we think some meals would be really helpful. Like just to take that one thing off their plate, just bring them meals. And I'm not kidding, like this family got so inundated with meals from the church. And when that happens and you've never experienced that before, it can be a little bit confusing. Like why are these people who do not know me coming to my house, bringing me meals, asking how they can pray for me. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. What would be the motivation of that? What would be the heart behind that? The heart behind that is the perfect love of God that has gone before us and restored us to himself through the work of the cross. And guys, when we begin to experience that, when we begin to behold that, when that never, ever gets old for us, we learn how to love even our enemies well. Let me offer a word of prayer and then we're going to respond in worship. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are the picture of perfect love. And God, we confess that we don't always get this right. God, I confess that I don't always get this right that there are moments in my life where I choose convenience over love. I choose pride over love. Or I choose security or easiness over love. And yet, God, you consistently demonstrate to us that love, love looks like sacrificing your life even for your enemy. And so, God, I pray that that perfect love given to us never gets old. That we never look at it and feel indifferent or pass by on the other side of the road, but that, God, we remember 